Well, for those of you um, who are visiting and weren't here last week, we're, we're moving through Mark. Now we are finally into chapter 10. I've, it's only taken me like a year and a half. Here we are in Mac, Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verse 1 through 12. I, I want to make a special note of the fact that in chapter 8 and 9, Jesus was very, very clear about what discipleship entailed. Losers. It requires you all to be losers. It requires all of you to be humble. It requires all of you to take up your cross and die and renounce self and follow him. And then Mark goes directly from that section to chapter 10. The first two things he talks about are marriage and children. And I think, I think that that is telling beyond uh, what I can do even, even right now. That is very telling. Uh, go out and love God and love your neighbor. And who are your closest neighbors? Your, your spouse and your children. Uh, he put a child in the midst of them and said, Behold, this is, these are such inherit the kingdom of God. Be like a little child. And then he, he goes on, right? And he talks about your children and what your relationship to them is supposed to be like. The primary crucible of most of our discipleship as, as individual Christians is, in fact, the home, as I think Mark's point. And so this week and next week, we're going to be talking about both marriage and child-rearing. But before we begin today, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your um, ceaseless and wondrous grace. We thank you that you, uh, Father God, did not give up on us, that you did not send us away with a decree of divorce and leave it at that. You are amazingly selfless and compassionate. You are, in fact, pursuing every whorish human being, every person who has rejected you and disavowed you and is going their own way. You unceasingly pursue them with grace and with kindness and with goodness. You are the loving bridegroom. You are um, the glorious one. And we pray, Lord God, that as we open your word today, not only will we know you better, but that we will, in fact, become more like you. We thank you and we praise you for this high and holy standard that you set before us today. We know that we cannot attain it, but we know uh, in ourselves that we cannot attain it, but that we know that we can in Jesus Christ. And so set him before us today. And amen. So I'm just going to launch right into it. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. It's been a while since he's been entertaining crowds. It's been a little while. But he's back now to his public ministry. Uh, he's back to this pattern now because he's moved to a new region of public ministry where he says um, he, he does teaching to a large crowd, and then he goes away and he explains what it really means to his chosen few. Uh, this is a pattern that he did all through um, the early portions, one chapter 1 through 9, and in a particular region. Mark's account of the Galilean ministry terminated in chapter 9. That's where he's been all along, is in Galilee. From this point forward, the narrative moves swiftly and relentlessly toward its inevitable climax in Jerusalem. Verse 1 is a summary passage reporting a further stage in the journey toward the Judean capital. It says in the Gospel of Luke, at this point, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's not out wandering around in the hills anymore. He has a destination in mind. He has a mission in mind. And he 
all of his focus is set towards that. The region of Judea, which Jesus enters now, is different in every way from the Galilean highlands in the north that he has been to up to this point. The rugged Galilee, with its simple and strongly nationalistic peasantry, was very, very different than the sophisticated city dwellings of the south, where Jesus has gone now. <laughs> so he didn't start in Seattle. He went out on the other side of the mountains in Ephrata, and that's where he began. And now he's ready to, to head to King County, to put it in a modern context. Judea in the south was dominated by Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was dominated by the temple with its Sadducean aristocracy and Sanhedrin, vested religious interests and rigid religious orthodoxy. What we're going to see now are the questions are very different. In fact, right here in the first question, it is as political as it gets. They're not concerned about you know, minu everyday minutia, table, table, dinner table sort of Christianity dinner table sort of faith, they're interested in what's moving and shaking at the highest levels. Because in the southern area, it's sophisticated, it's metropolitan, and it's where the sources of the centers of power are, and so they're all focused on the centers of power. Uh, it's amazing. It's When you go to Los Angeles, it's amazing how many people there are consumed by, f by what goes on amongst the famous. And you can get that on TMZ on television. But it's amazing how if you go down to a place like Los Angeles, which is a cultural center, everything seems to be focused on it. Uh, you don't get that as much <laughs> in Linwood, which is not a cultural center. So you see, at this point, if you pay attention, the, the, the way that people interact with him and what they're interacting with him about changes drastically. Mark chapter 10, verse 2. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? <laughs> Not so subtle. This is like the least subtle attack that he has gotten thus far. The question is hostile in its very intention, as Mark indicates by the qualifying phrase, test him. They're trying to entrap, entrap him. They're trying to get Jesus in trouble. Satan withdrew from the desert battle to wait for a more opportune time. After the disciples say that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the first thing um, Peter does right after that is say, he, he says, well, he questions him. Is that really what God said Messiahship is like, what you just described? Is that really what God said? And Jesus rebukes him and says, be gone from me, Satan. So Satan had withdrawn for a more opportune time, and the more opportune time was through Peter, immediately after Peter makes a big revela personal revelation about who Jesus is, and he does the very thing that Satan did. He uses the word of God. Is that really what a Messiah is, Jesus? Now, through the Pharisees, they are also trying to entrap him. The word test there is, is tempt. It's the same word. They're trying to tempt him. Did God really say, are you really, does, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Did God really say, this is always Satan's play. This is the simplest kind when it comes to believers. <laughs> because we believe, we, know, we think we understand the Bible very well. We think we do. We're very susceptible to this kind of attack, and we see that through Peter or through the Pharisees, this is how Satan usually tempts us tempts believers. The territory described in Mark chapter 10, verse 1, is the region where John the Baptist's ministry took place. Presumably, somewhere in this area, 
John denounced Herod Antipas for marrying his brother's wife, and that ultimately cost John his life. So here the Pharisees are thinking, oh, you know what got John off of our case? <laughs> Was him talking about marriage in an area where the, in con, where the two people who are in control of it are two people who ought not to be married. So you know what we ought to do? Let's get Jesus to say the, the same thing. Or, or, given some things that Jesus has done, we're not really sure what he thinks about marriage and divorce and remarriage. So maybe what we can do is get him to say something that uh, uh, is obscene to his followers and they stop following him. They're trying to get him to either anger Herod and his wife or counter-argue or, or contradict John the Baptist. That is what this is all about. So everything we're going to say, the context here is the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus dead. right? They, they, they were conspiring earlier with the Herodians. They want him dead. And the way they do it is asking him a question about the law of Moses. If you, if you turn back to Mark chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, for those of you who may have, it's been a while, may have forgotten about this. This is what it says in chapter 6, verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was eagerly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And we remember from that story what happened. Immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he was beheaded for what he had to say about marriage. But that's not all. Jesus is, is someone who has said some things about marriage that is very confusing. How many of you guys remember the story about the woman at the well? There you go. I like the show of hands. Thank you. There we go. Even more people, now that we know that's not a rhetorical question. I like that so many of us know the story, because then it's easy for me to reference it. I don't have to go and read the whole thing. But re recall in that story, Jesus is sitting at the well talking to a Samaritan woman who Jewish leaders do not usually talk to, and somewhere in that conversation, he just offhandedly drops the fact that she has had five husbands, and the one she's with now is not actually her husband. And then they go on to have a lengthy discussion about adultery and marriage. No. Right? What was Jesus' response? He's like, oh, I just want to, I'm just going to mention this for context's sake. And then I'm going to move on about how I'm going to save you, how I'm going to redeem you, how I'm going to bring you back. So one, right, if you don't have the best intentions, could say, well, Jesus, you're awfully soft on adultery. You're awfully soft on marriage. Another story, both of these I'm going to reference quite a bit, John chapter 8, another story that I love. <laughs> There's Jesus, and these guys bring this woman Oh, look, we've caught her in, a, in, in, a, in, in adultery. She was committing adultery. Well, automatically, before we get into what it actually says, I have a couple of questions. Well, where's the guy that you caught her with? Which one of you is that guy? No? Oh, we're just going to... Oh, I see. We're going to stone the woman. I see how it is. And what does Jesus say? He says, okay, cool, let's stone her. Let's do it. Oh, how about, I know, I know how we'll start. The one who hasn't sinned, you can throw the first one. So he gets down and he starts writing in the dirt, right? And I like this because it's a real mystery about what he did, but I think what he's doing is writing their names. He's like, oh, Jim. 
<laughs> you are a liar. <laughs> and another beauty, I mean, that story is full of it, full of good things, because then they go away starting at the oldest one, the one who has a little bit of wisdom. It's like, oh, and then they walk away. Right? And the only one who's qualified under what he just said to Stoner is him. And he doesn't. Man, he is soft on adultery. Right? The question that they're asking him is a good one because he's either going to incriminate himself in the eyes of Herod or all these people who, who have made an idol out of the law are going to think that Jesus is pretty soft on adultery and pretty soft on marriage. Either way, they're trying to entrap him. Now, the question itself. The discussion is clearly about the legitimacy of divorce itself, not the grounds. They're not asking on what grounds can people get divorced. They're asking if divorce itself is legitimate or not. Jesus' teaching was that two believing people joined together by God should never, ever, ever be divorced. This, to say the least, was a radical teaching within early Jewish circles, where no-fault divorce was easy to attain and is a demonstration of the hypocrisy within the highest Jewish legal circles. Now, for those of you who don't know what no-fault divorce is, it's where no one is held responsible for it. It's like, oh, you guys aren't getting along anymore? Ir irreconcilable differences? Right? That's If you go and <laughs> you look up the files, you're like, oh, okay, let's look at all the divorces this week at King County. And you go and you're like, oh, irreconcilable, irreconcilable, irreconcilable. Everybody apparently has the same irreconcilable. It's nobody's fault. We just couldn't really work it out. And that's what no-fault divorce is. In this state, you can get a, a divorce. They do no-fault divorce, and they split everything directly down the middle, and it's nobody's fault. Nice try. Good luck next time. And this is part and parcel one of the, the greatest evils of our day. Someone is, in fact, at fault, which we're going to talk about. Right? Generally, two people. So <laughs> it's, it, it was very easy in Jesus' day. If you remember, there's in the same story, I think it's in Matthew. <laughs> Peter himself says, uh, so you're saying it's better not to get married. <laughs> so without no-fault divorce, without easy divorces, Peter, you actually, yeah, it is easier to be unmarried. Because then, right, if you get married and you can't get, can't get out of it, then what's going to happen is you're going to have to change and work it out. And Peter says the very obvious thing, God bless you, Peter, you're always right on. Yeah, that sounds really hard, and it sounds better not to be married. And, and on the face of it, that is true. It is much easier to be not married than to be married and not be able to get out of it, under no circumstances. Now, the odd thing about this question is that nobody ever argues about the legitimacy of divorce. That was never a question. Why, why they phrased the question the way they did just shows that they're really trying to just get him in trouble. Because nobody argued about this. No one in their day was arguing about the legitimacy of divorce. But the recent divorces of Herod, Antipas, and his sister-in-law, Herodias, in order to marry each other, framed the debates between the rabbinical schools at the time. There were two, the conservative one and the liberal one. The conservative school held that adultery was the only lawful grounds for divorce. The liberal school, however, claimed that a man could divorce his wife for anything. Anything. Anything that displeased him. Even, and this is on record, burning the food. 
And there are Jewish men who came home and said, listen, I'm sick of the rye bread getting burned. You're out. You're done. Pack your bags. <laughs> I would say that this is just as true today as it was then. People will get divorced for the dumbest reasons that you can possibly imagine. Right? He just wouldn't, he just, he doesn't respect me, he doesn't love me, and he won't, and he shows it every day by not putting the socks in the hamper like I said. And you, and you sit down with these married couples, and they have all kinds of problems, but why is it that we're always talking about where the socks go in the hamper? Like, you really can't let, like, this is really now, okay, for, for some people, you're like, this just demonstrates their lack of love, and their lack of understanding, and their lack of reasonableness. So please, just get him away from me. And, and when you really get down to interviewing people who've been divorced, sometimes it, the thing, the thing, the straw that broke the camel's back is as silly as burning food. So I'm not going to just point fingers back to the first century. People are still this ridiculous, right? And I mean, I will testify, nobody in here is getting divorced, but how many, how many times have you guys had a fight and the fight was over like the toothpaste? The fight was over... Right? Why did you not just finish the milk? Why did you take this nearly empty container and put it back in the fridge? I just said, <laughs> there was something yesterday. I can't even remember what it was, but I was so annoyed. I was like, I'm going to punch myself in the face. And everybody sitting around the table thinks that's so funny when Dad says that. Because that's when me, I'm, a, I'm so frustrated. I'm going to punch myself in the face. What is it? I told them to wipe off the table and they missed this spot. Right? And th- this is what people are always like. And so if you, keep, if you don't keep short accounts, if you're this frustrated all the time, right? So everybody laughed, and that usually helped me, and then Daddy repents, and we move on. I don't want anyone to think there's trouble in my house. <laughs> but, like, this, this burnt food example is a reality for everyone sitting in this room. You are, you, you are like, ridiculously involved and ridiculously upset about things that are just tiny, there, there are still some cultures in, in, in the East where literally all you have to say is divorce, 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 and you are divorced. And it was practically that easy in Jesus' day. I'm sure that you've got one. You're, thinking, you're sitting there thinking right now, you're like, yes, he really does not put the cap back on the toothpaste, right? There's apparently, there was a cap on the toothpaste in my house, but nobody's been able to find it for three weeks. And nobody knows who was the last one to have it, right? And that's very, I'm telling you, that happens often enough. You get a little, you're like, no fault divorce? <laughs> right? Because what, what is Jesus just got done through chapter 8 and chapter 9 telling us about men, right? We, we do not want to die to ourselves. We do not want to renounce ourselves. Self is our idol, and self is the thing that I'm trying to protect, and it doesn't matter how small it is, I'm going to protect me. And this is how people live. And, and if, when it runs rampant and when it runs uncontrolled, what you have is the worst kind of sin that people commit against, can commit against one another. Mark chapter 10, verse 3. Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? Straightforward response. You guys want to talk about the law? Let's talk about the law. What did Moses say? Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. As usual, Jesus answered the Pharisees first at their own level by taking them back to to Moses at once, removing any suspicion of unorthodoxy, either in the direction of rigorism or laxity. 
He's helping correct their misunderstanding. They think he doesn't understand the law because he seems pretty soft on marriage and he seems pretty soft on adultery. So he says, okay, well, our standard is Moses. And some of them think, okay, man, that was a clever answer, Jesus. That, that was the right answer. So now what they're going to do is what Jews just love to do in that day. And now they're going to debate about the specifics. Now, there is, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, this is what they are referring to. Deuteronomy chapter 24. There is the mo- one of the most vaguest phrases in all of Hebrew. And, and this, is what, this is what it says. I'm going to read Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 through 4. What a man, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Well, what does that mean? Not found favor in his eyes because of some indecency. Well, what does that word indecency mean? Does it mean sexual perversion? Does it mean burning food? Right? <laughs> it is so indecent how you fold those clothes. You have no favor in my eyes. That is a really confusing phrase. And in the hands of these men, right, who are going more on tradition than the actual law, they have allowed it to mean just about anything they want. They also have made it so that a a woman can't divorce a man. It says when a man, right, the man can divorce her because she has found no favor in his eyes and because there's indecency in her. Well, what happens? What happens when he's indecent? What happens when he doesn't find favor in her eyes? Well, it it says very clearly, right, we are legalists. So we're going to go by the letter of the law. Now I'm going to keep reading here. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter, latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So the lady has no favor in his eyes. There's some indecency in her. So he writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her away. He can't now marry her because he's defiled her by doing so. Which is exactly what Paul or what um, Jesus is saying later. The man who puts the woman away and she goes and marries another man, they've created an adulterous relationship. Straight up. You divorce her, you send her away, she marries another man, she's an adulterer now. You've defiled her. It's exactly what Jesus says. (laughs) And this has flummoxed and perplexed and created more trouble in the church than almost anything else. Because who do you want this kind of strictness in the hands of? Jesus or the Pharisees? Right? In the hands of, right, this is wise and true and good because it's the law of God and 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 it expresses the holiness of God. And whether it is good or bad, it really depends on whose hand this law is resting. The passage is case law. Case law is not a direct command or a categorical imperative. The categorical imperative is you shall or you shall not. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not. This is case law. 
It's an if-then situation. Case laws are, gui- are, gui- are used to guide our application of the law. They are framed by if-then, allowing discretion in application. Now, the death penalty is the highest sentence of, for murder or adultery. A married man and a married woman commit adultery, stone them to death. A man commits a murder, a woman commits a murder, put them to death. Right? And, and, and people who start, start to get the hands on the law start to be like, yes, murder them, put them to death. But what we find is that this is how case law works. What we are given is the extreme sentence. This is the highest level sentence that you can give a person. Now, because it's case law, you can decide to give them a lower sentence, but this is the highest sentence. If you want to take it this far, given how extreme the case is, this is how you're supposed to handle it. And the reason that case law is so important, because there is so much ambiguous language here. Right? You don't want to be too fast on pulling the trigger on case law because the language is purposely ambiguous. Now, working in the courts, the laws are still exactly the same way. You've got to be very careful about the words that you choose because if it's too strict, you've, you've painted yourself into a corner, and then what you have to do is start handing out $10,000 penalties and three years in jail no matter what. And, and you can write a law where you paint yourself into a corner where you have to do that. And people think, because of the holiness of God, because it's the law of God, it says put to death an adulterer, put to death a murderer, that there is no wiggle room. But that's never how case law works. It, it, you sit down, you hear the case. Okay, that is, is about a high-handed murder as I've ever heard. Premeditated, that person was completely innocent. This, this person, I think, will commit this crime again. And so let's actually do the right thing and put this person to death. Huh? Then you have people like David. Then you have people like Saul. You have people like Moses. Saul and David, David who was also an adulterer, both committed conspiracy to commit murder. They conspired to murder someone. And nowhere, right, and, and in those cases, the circumstances, right, because then you go back, if you start talking about the Old Testament and people from the outside of, of, the, of the church are like, well, you guys just, uh, you're okay with murderers. I mean, Moses was a murderer. He, he murdered that poor Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Is there any place in, in the Bible in which Moses is referred to as a murderer? How about David? Well, yes, but David repents of his sin, right? David loses his child. God doesn't, right? There are circumstances that happen to people who commit these sins, and, and God deals with them. So when you sit down, you're like, wow, okay, you committed adultery, and then you murdered her husband, and your baby died, and it sounds like you guys have been through a lot. And in my opinion, that seems wise and prudent, especially when it's David and he's willing to repent so quickly over it. Implicitly, the text in Deuteronomy is saying that divorce has serious consequences for both parties. But in the first century, the Pharisees taught that a man could divorce his wife for any number of reasons. They, they clearly do not understand what's being said in Deuteronomy, because in Deuteronomy, what they're saying is that this is, it defiles the woman. And you shouldn't do this lightly. You shouldn't just put her away for burning the food, because what you do is you defile her, and she is an Israelite, and that is a serious thing. And you don't just do it because, you know, I just, I'm not as into her as I used to be, so I don't really care. We're just 
put the baggage to the side and we'll start over. They were interpreting it in a way that justified their sexual sins. They wanted sexual license. That's what they wanted. And they're going to come at Jesus about the law of God as if he isn't upholding, right? He's soft on adultery. He's soft on marriage. Now, the seriousness of this has to be understood as we proceed. Because understanding how divorce works and what it's for, we have to understand it, first off, how serious it actually is. A woman divorced for anything other than adultery who's put away against her will is placed in a situation where she must pursue another marriage for social standing. This isn't in our day. This is in Jesus' day. You aren't a citizen. You aren't a person as a woman all by yourself unless you're extraordinarily rich or you're married. And so imagine the poor gal who never quite could figure out how to bake bread correctly is now put out because she burned it again. And then if she wants to be somebody and not be a beggar on the street, she's got to get married again. And so she's ha- she goes and she gets married again. And because of her husband was an idiot, she's now an adulterer. And that's the cultural situation that's going on. And this doesn't, this has not gone past Jesus. He understands this. If you go to Amos chapter 7, verse 17, we read something very interesting. Amos chapter 7, verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in the unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Now, this is God pronouncing judgment on Israel for what? For unfaithfulness to him. The men have been unfaithful. The men are going to die in an unclean land. They're going into exile. And what's going to happen to their wives? In order to make it, they're going to have to prostitute themselves. They've created defiled relationships, adulterous relationships, because they are not leading like they ought to. And there are other occasions of this in the Old Testament. One of the ju- like, at one point, God says, it's one of the prophets, of course, because those guys are intense. But he says to them, listen, you guys, Israel, are bad, and, it's, and this army is going to come in, and it's going to whoop you, and all your wives are going to be taken away, and they're going to become the wives now of these other people. And they're going to have, that, that's just their part of dealing with the judgment of God. And so all those ladies who are carried off to be the third, fourth slave wife of some dude they've never met before, whose fault is it? You've got this lady in Jesus' day, Right? She's divorced for burning the bread. She gets into an adulterous relationship. Whose fault is it? Here's this woman. They bring him to stone her to death. Whose fault is it? Jesus understands how case law works. He understands who is responsible. And it's not the ladies, it's the men. Israel is a whore. And when you say Israel, who is he talking about? He's talking about the men. Because they're the representatives of the whole community. And what they have done is they've used the law of God to serve themselves, and they've put all these women and all these children in dangerous position, in a defiled position, because they couldn't die to themselves. And they're coming at Jesus like Jesus has some explaining to do. 
Yeah, no wonder Jesus sits down at the well and he has nothing but compassion for that woman there because he, he, he knows exactly the kind of men she's dealing with. And I don't know how many times, Christian or otherwise, I sit down with a lady and I think, you know, the, you know what's been missing your entire life is a good man. I don't know if you've ever met one ever. And they're brokenhearted and you're trying to comfort them. And you're like, listen, I any, where's your dad? You had three husbands, where are they? Now we go back to this Amos verse for a moment. The ladies are prostitutes. The kids are put to the sword. Now, does that sound like a feminist abortion culture to you? Sounds like it to me. So, (laughs) make America great again. You want to make America great again? How about you get the guys to stop acting like a bunch of selfish pigs? No, no, it has something to do with, like, you know, imports and exports or something. Mark chapter 10, verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. I, I, for, for Jesus' sake, I, moments like this, I can imagine he said that entire thing just now through gritted teeth. Well, you know, Moses said we could, we could give them certificates of divorce. It's because you're a bunch of sinners. It's because your hearts are hard. Could you imagine the patience that this Lord of ours had to endure? Right? What he had to put up with. Yeah, you're right, guys. He definitely, yeah, he did. He allowed you to give certificates of divorce because your hearts are an idol factory. Jesus begins with their understanding of Mosaic law, making it clear that his teaching was designed to give a new depth of meaning to the law. He wants them to think of the law because now he's going to add to it. He's going to broaden their horizons. Not to dismiss it, not to supersede it. Jesus first indicates that provision for divorce was due to human rebellion against the divine ideal. He feel, right? Jesus understands this because he's a good judge. Moses is sitting there with cases where he's got these sad, pig-hearted men, and he's like, okay, you know, this is just sin from top to bottom, what you brought me here. And so what I've got to do is now we, we have to, let's, let's end the nightmare and just let you guys get divorced. There's hardness of heart from top to bottom, left to right, nothing but it. And in order to save this poor woman from having to endure any more of this, what I'm going to do is allow you to divorce her and let her set her free. <laughs> and the Jews in Jesus' day are like, man, you know what? She gets a little old. Moses, let me divorce so I can just trade her in for a new model. In the exact opposite interpretation of what was meant by the law of Moses. It wasn't to allow you to do whatever you want, homie. It was to allow her to get out from under your control because you're a nightmare. The Mosaic provision in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, was in reality a witness to the gross evil which arose from, or even consisted in, a disregard of the creation ordinance of marriage, as set forth in Genesis chapter 1. 
Situations that gave rise for the permission of divorce was one of moral perversity, which consisted in a deliberate determination not to abide by the will of God. It's a compromise. It's a compromise because some men cannot be ruled. Some men's passions cannot be ruled. Some men's desires cannot be ruled. Their hearts cannot be softened. And so what we have to do is we have to allow for some of these marriages to end. But what happens is you create defilement. And and, and in Moses' day, they should have heard that word, and they all should have understood what was happening when you allow a divorce. Because defilement in the Mosaic law is not a good thing. The calloused attitude which could be taken in regard to divorce is well il- illustrated by the counsel of a respected teacher in, the, uh, in 200 B.C. This is a Jewish teacher now. His name is Joshua ben Syra, and this is what he says. If she go not as you would have her go, cut her off and give her a bill of divorce. Literally, cut her off from your own flesh. If she will not go the way you want her to go, what does that mean? That seems pretty loosey-goosey. But he at least understands what's happening. He says, cut her off. Because if two are made one, you literally have to get in there with a chainsaw and separate the two. Right? And that's gruesome. But let's think about this. Two things that have become one thing, how do you get them apart? You've got to cut them in half. And is that ever pleasant? Is that ever good? Is that something that really warms your heart to think about? And these guys are like, yeah, man, no fault divorce. Let's do this. Let's just get in there, right? You get on that side, grab that thing. Let's saw this baby in half. The provision was an attempt to limit the effects of human sinfulness. And and they, they have totally missed it. They've totally missed it. Jesus moved the discussion to a higher plane by going beyond interpreting Moses' legislation to God's original intention. Because he goes back to something, these guys are lawyers, but they obviously don't know much about the law. Because there's something that exists at the very beginning called creation ordinances. The law that existed long, long before Moses was ever thought of. And if you go back to the beginning, in the garden, unfallen man, he's told to do things. He's told to keep the Sabbath. He's told to cling to his wife. He's told to take dominion of the earth. And and, and these... Mandates, these ordinances that were there at the beginning, include marriage. Creation ordinances are laws that God gave to Adam and Eve before the fall to shape the lives of humanity, not just believers, but all people, because (laughs) Adam and Eve are are the representatives of all mankind. Sabbath and worship ordinance, the dominion ordinance, the marriage and procreation ordinance. Take dominion of the earth, go forth, fill it up, and keep the Sabbath. So that supersedes anything that Moses had to say. right? You have to understand what Moses had to say about it from the point of view of the creation ordinance, the thing that God desired. And the thing that God desired was he, t- he made them male and female, and he took the two of them, and he made them one. And Jesus here makes the obvious conclusion, what God has brought together, don't separate and there's all kinds of this in Genesis. In Genesis, he's bringing things to, right? He's separating and bringing things together. If you go and you look at the pattern, he's doing this in very interesting ways. He separates the water from the land. Now, to reverse that is to reverse God's will. 
which is why the flood is so horrible. Because at first he separates the waters from the land, and because he's so angry at mankind for their sinfulness, he, he, he withdraws that, and he allows water now to cover land. And so if you go back into Genesis and you start messing around with the things that he divided and the things that he united, you are messing around with the very fabric of our existence, as we can well see with what they've done to marriage in our own day. Right? Starts with feminism, starts with no-fault divorce, and we end with, what's a boy? And, and, and that is a direct line. I am not just up here like a CNN or Fox News guy. You just follow the steps. Darwinism, feminism, no-fault divorce, and now we're what now? Right? Another boy just won the state championship as a girl somewhere back east. Because nothing helps empower women like letting boys play as girls. Makes all the sense in the world to me. Now, see, the, the Torah, the law, as the Jews called it, was not the Ten Commandments. It was the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So if you go back, the law of God is more than just the Ten Commandments. What you have to understand is how all the rest of it fits under the Ten Commandments. Because the Ten Commandments are, in fact, the basic level law. And if you go in the Old Testament, everything, or in, in the Torah, everything fits under there. The section of Scripture called Torah means law, and it's the five books of Moses. The law of God is expressed in the creation account. The law of God is expressed in Joseph's humiliation and exaltation, in the destruction of Israel, in the building of the tabernacle, I'm sorry, the destruction of Egypt and the building of the tabernacle with the Egyptians' plunder. All of that helps us understand what the law and will of God is, what his holiness is about, what his people are about. And this is consistent. This is not an idea that's gone away. If we go to Malachi chapter 2, verse 13 and 16, this is how the Old Testament ends. This is the, like, right, this is towards the end of the Old Testament. This is what Malachi has to say. And the second thing you do, he's saying to Israel now, this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why doesn't he? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. He covers his garments in violence. He creates defilement. Mark chapter 10, verse 9, this is it. Oh, you, okay, we're going to talk about what Moses said, and then we're going to talk about creation order, and because we're going to talk about where, what was behind that, what was behind creation, what was behind the law of Moses. Mark chapter 10, verse 9, Therefore God has, what God has joined together, let no man separate. It begins and ends with God. Because the creation, what? We learn what? The creation expresses his secret, his hidden attributes, his power, his person, the law of Moses does what? It reveals his holiness. So there is something about marriage that 
exists in God. There's something about it. If you go all the way back, God in his will says, I'm going to bring things together and no man shall separate them. Divorce is an assault on creation. It's an assault on its creator. That must be the standard. Divorce is horrible. Divorce is wicked. Always. There's no exception to it being wicked. But because of our hardness of heart, it's necessary at times. It's necessary at times. Jesus is, is here up to this point, raising the bar as high as he possibly can, which is the God himself. God has done this. Who are you to undo the works of God? So if you're going to get into a situation where divorce might be something that is necessary, you've got to start with this premise. You are separating something that God brought together, something that he made, you're undoing. And if that doesn't send most of us back to the drawing board and say, okay, well, let's try marriage counseling again, right? Let's go back and read some more books. Let's slow down. Let's think about what we're doing because what we're doing is destroying something that God made. Only then, only then does Jesus, okay, make one small caveat. (laughs) And, And I think that's a really important thing. He starts with the highest possible standard and then he says, okay, in Mark chapter 10, verse 10, and in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery as well. Jesus gives a qualification in private, not publicly, because publicly he wants them to raise the the standard. They're going to be judges, and they're going to have to differentiate between cases. But what he wants everyone to understand is that divorce is not okay. Divorce is, is destroying something that God has made. Jesus did something the conventional wisdom about marriage did not do. He treats men and women with strict equality. This is, we can't miss this part. He applied the same stricture against divorce to both men and women. Men and women, he affirmed, who initiate a divorce and then remarry commit adultery against their original spouses. The new element in this teaching, which was totally unrecognized in the rabbinic courts, was the concept of a husband committing adultery against his former wife. That's a brand new idea. I can imagine he said what he said here, given the he's and she's, and the disciples are sitting there going, wait, wait, they can divorce us now? What do you, Jesus, don't do that. Do you know how bad I've been? Do you know what kind of husband I am? You start letting women divorce us. That's not good. This is true. I can't make this stuff up. I can't. According to rabbinic law, a man could commit adultery against another married man by seducing his wife, and a wife could commit adultery against her husband by infidelity, but a husband, it was not considered logical at all, a husband does not commit adultery against his own wife. What? I'm sorry now? What? And so Jesus is trying, right? He's been there at the well with that woman. He's been there. He's seen the girl that they want to stone to death for adultery. He understands what's going on, and he's trying to correct something, a fundamental creation-level order that has gotten all mixed, mixed up. And in the beginning, he made them male and female. He made them together. There's equality there that needs to be recognized. 
The sharp intensifying of the concept of adultery had the effect of elevating the status of the wife to the same dignity as her husband, which is consistent with the law of God. If you go to Exodus chapter 21, this is what it says. If, if the man takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. If the man doesn't take care of his wife the way he ought to, she gets to freely go. Now, wh- what happened to that? How come nobody's quoting Exodus here when they're talking to Jesus? Because women had become chattel, and that word means they became property. I can take you into my house and put you out of my house like I can take a carpet into my house and put a carpet out of my house. And I don't care that it defiles anybody. I don't care what the result is. You've displeased me. Now, what kind of men are running this culture? This is appointed judgment upon Herodias. (laughs) Has Jesus in any way here avoided getting himself into trouble? No. He, He knew exactly what he was saying. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he didn't care who knew it or who heard it. He'd go, tell her. Go tell. They're they're adulterers. He's not afraid. This is uh, Jared's sermon on apologetics. He's not afraid of giving the the reason for the hope within him. (laughs) You guys want to talk about marriage? Let's talk about the law of God. Let's talk about creation order. Let's talk about men and women and real justice. Let's talk about the equality of man and woman. Are you writing this down? Herod's going to want to hear this. He's not afraid. And this is why he set his face to Jerusalem. He understands there is one way, and he doesn't care how he gets there. He's going to go there. He is going to obey God. He's going to honor God. He's going to lift up God. He's going to praise God and worship God no matter what it cost him. Now, I'm going to be very clear. And I'm saying this with some fear and trepidation because some of you know our story and some of you don't. But if you are married and you are divorced for any other reason than adultery and you go and you marry someone, you've created an adulterous relationship. It's what it says in the Word of God. Now, is adultery a sin that you can repent of? Oh, it... Right, right there, it says it is actually. Right, it says the standard of adultery is you think it in your head, you're doing it. So why is it that divorce in a lot of fundamentalist circles has become the unforgivable sin? Because I've seen Christian men and Christian women ostracized to the point of no longer being welcome at a church because they had they had a divorce, and they are treated badly. And there are a bunch of happily married people for 25, 30 years who have been Christians for too long who sound an awful lot like these Pharisees. But Jesus isn't talking about the unforgivable sin. He's saying, yes, you create defilement. You create problems. You create sin. And I came to die for the sin. Right? And, and, and this, is where I'm, he, this is where he's landed. He said, no, I, let's go from, from Moses. Let's go to creation. Let's go to God himself. And what we have as the standard of marriage is Jesus himself. And, this, and it cuts both ways. Because... God came to Israel and gave her a certificate of divorce because she was a whore and said, get out of my house. And they got out. And here comes God, Jesus, 
And he's, and he's the bridegroom, and he's pursuing a whore. He's pursuing an idol-riddled whore. And he's not, hey, yeah, you know, she displeased me, and I have every right to put her outside. He's on the moral high ground here where he's pursuing somebody that he's not obligated to pursue, which is you. <laughs> right? You, the church of God. It gets really weird when you take the bridal things and make it personal. So I'm saying all of you, right? You are the bride of Christ. And he pursued you. And so that's the standard, husbands. It's like what I told my wife when we first got married. I don't care. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to divorce you. I'm not going to do it. it. Jesus is the standard. That's the standard. He's not going to stay divorced. He pursued the woman all the way into, right, to win her back. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 to 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm going, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So way back when God is standing there and he's separating things and bringing things together, what he has in mind is his son and the church of God. All along. It wasn't like Jesus is standing around thinking, I need a handy metaphor for my relationship to the church. Oh, look, marriage. From the very beginning, marriage is the relationship between the Son of God and and the Bride of God. And this oneness is what Jesus is pursuing. And he doesn't care about your history. He doesn't care about what you've done. He wants you to stop doing it, right? In John chapter 8, he tells the girl, stop committing adultery. Go forth and sin no more. And sends her on her way. He knows that the woman at the well needs living water. But he knows what kind of woman she is, and he's willing to give it to her anyway. And that's you. You're the woman at the well. (laughs) Right? You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now isn't. The idol you're with now isn't your husband, but you've been with all kinds of idols all over the place, under the green trees and up in the hills, and on the TV and in your radio and in the books, and in the dark of night, all alone, with stone and with wood, it says, with metal and plastic, copper, all the wonderful things that we have now, all idols, that someone in this room at some point has committed adultery with, and yet he doesn't care. He'll take you anyway. And this is the standard of marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 27. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Yeah, he's difficult to submit to. I agree. But submit to him as you're submitting to the Lord. Right? When you're doing it, think of him. Because he's the faithful one. He's the one that's not going to abandon you. He's the one that doesn't care that you put on a little weight. He's the one that doesn't care that you burn the bread. He is the one that loves you no matter what. And so when you look at that slob, think of him. (laughs) Say, okay, I'll do it. Because really, the authority behind you, the authority, is Jesus. And even at the bottom level, when that's all you can do is do it because you're thinking of Jesus, go with that. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the standard of marriage. Your spouse is doing things they ought not to do, and you know it. Your spouse is doing a bunch of things that annoy you, and you need to get over it. <laughs> right? That person is hard to submit to. I agree. That lady sometimes isn't as lovely as she ought to be, and whose fault is that? Right? This is the standard of marriage, is Jesus. And what, we, what we, this culture that we are living in doesn't mind creating defilement all over the place, doesn't mind sacrificing the kids to the sword, doesn't mind running after idols under every green tree. What the people of God are called to is to die to yourselves and follow this Lord, this husband. Because he said, I I don't care how dirty you are, I'll clean you. I don't care how ugly you are, I will beautify you. I don't care how wretched you are, I will make you splendid. Now, husbands, are you loving your wives like that? Right? If, if this is the standard, what your spouse is or isn't doing, does it really, right? How does it pale in comparison to what I'm talking about here? That's the goal. Yes, people, divorce is something that the law of God allows us to do at times because sometimes it's the lesser of two evils. Amen. Amen. Because sometimes you're like, all I can do is pull the parachute cord on this thing and bail out. And that is true. But we have to understand what's at stake when we're doing that. And we have to understand what the standard is and get over ourselves. Jesus didn't forsake you, and he had every right to. Jesus doesn't care how ugly you are. He's beautifying you. That is the standard of marriage. That should be the standard in your home. That should be the standard for your children to see between your spouses. That's the standard, the way that we should talk about one another, husbands and wives, when we're out in a world that hates fruitfulness, that hates marriage, because they hate God. It was the people of God all along here that Jesus was talking to, not the world. Because these kinds of changes, these kinds of re- this kind of revival of marriage happen, starts here and spreads. It's not going to start out there, right? We can't legislate it from Washington, D.C. And so as you go from here, look for ways to die to yourself in your marriage. Look for ways to honor your spouse. Look for ways, right, to lift the ladies up, gentlemen. Look for ways to submit, ladies, and show your children, show this world what the gospel is all about, because that's what marriage is all about. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word your sanctifying word. It is deep and wide. And and I pray, Lord God, that you would forgive us for our adulteries, that you would forgive us for our lack of compassion for one another, that we would be like you were with the woman at the well, and that we would be like you with the woman they brought you who had committed adultery, that we would stand firm in the face of the Pharisees like you did, that we would pursue our wives like you did, that we would submit to the Lord our God like you did. And all of these things we pray in your name and amen.